Southwestern Family of Companies welcomes you to the Action Catalyst. Each week, our diversely and amazingly accomplished guests share their insights and inspirations to help us ignite our own. So let's invest attention together to breathe, to reflect and refocus, and decisively defeat that voice we call Mr. Mediocrity. Then let's enjoy moving forward to make a positive difference in our world. On today's episode, host Dan Moore welcomes Dr. Julia Digonji, a neuropsychologist and expert in the brain's relationship with stress, resilience, and relationships, who has worked in international humanitarian relief, as well as on multiple U.S. presidential campaigns and at the White House. She is regularly the keynote speaker for corporate, healthcare, government and educational audiences, and has published extensively in scientific literature as well as in popular press outlets, like Psychology Today and the Chicago Tribune. Her most recent work is a book for Harvard Business Review, titled From Pain to Progress, The Neuroscience of Smart Leadership in Tough Times. We hope you enjoy. Well, Dr. Julia Deganji, welcome to the Action Catalyst. It's great to have you today. I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for having me, Dan. My brain is calling and it wants to talk. Well, I'm happy to talk to your brain. I'm very excited. You've got such an interesting background, Julia, starting off as a journalism student, working your way up into many organizations that help provide aid around the world into political campaigns, and also now working with the neuroscience of the brain to help decision makers make better decisions, leaders be better leaders, families be better families, and people be better people. Is that an accurate summary? <laughs> I was like, that. I like this a lot. Yes, it's very accurate. Yep. And I love how you pointed out the brain goes everywhere, right? So it's our parenting, it's our families, it's our community, it's our business. So I think this is such a powerful conversation and I love the way that you described it. The brain goes everywhere without necessarily us having free reign over controlling it. It just takes off wherever direction it wants to go, doesn't it? Yes, but I think we have far more control than we sometimes think. And I think that's such an incredibly empowering and hopeful message. And that is why I want to have this conversation with you. It's like, how do we think about emotional intelligence and how do we think about leadership? And I don't mean leadership of a 40,000 person company. I mean, leadership over our own lives. And I think that has to start with our nervous system. Can we do just a, a little bit of a bio though first, if you don't mind, maybe share some of those significant pivot points in your own past that led you from being an Iowa Hawkeye studying journalism to your position of tremendous influence now with the world. Go Hawkeyes. So yeah, actually the story, like I think all of our stories begins in childhood. I come from like a lineage of psychologists. So my father is a psychologist, for example. And so I really grew up sort of talking about psychology. Um, my brother is significantly disabled. And so I, I was from a very early age interested in issues of inclusion and social justice and people. You know, and so that's why I became a journalism major and I worked as a journalist both in the U.S. and overseas as I just was so interested in people's stories. But journalists are objective, right? And for me, the social justice piece was very motivating. And I think that there, there were things that I wanted to be more of an advocate for. And so I moved into political spaces. So I worked at the White House. I worked on several presidential campaigns and really sort of thought about how to mobilize and motivate people. If you really think about what motivates us. It is our, our suffering and it is our power. It's the idea of having a better life, having more peaceful life, having more meaningful life. And so I, I really loved doing the political work, but the thing that really struck me, I started doing work overseas as well, a lot of sort of international development, international relief work. There's amazing education programs. There were amazing physical health programs. I did a lot of work in 
sub-Saharan Africa, for example. So there were some great HIV AIDS initiatives. But the thing that I kept realizing is like, we're doing all this great programming in war-torn countries and famine-stricken countries and HIV AIDS pandemic places. But what, what were we doing on the trauma piece? In other words, families were getting destroyed. People's lives were getting destroyed. Communities were getting destroyed. And I didn't think there was enough around the mental health piece. And so I never thought this was going to be my case, but I went back to school to become a psychologist, a neuropsychologist. I'm a brain expert, but I have all of this big systems expertise as well, right? So political systems, community systems, family systems, this idea of like the world is ready for a bigger, bolder, more powerful conversation on mental health and everything that it entails. And so that's kind of been my trajectory. And I know this is a tough moment. But I think it's an incredibly hopeful moment as well, because I think it's so easy to get hopeless. Okay. I mean, I, so my, my expertise is actually trauma specifically. So I have worked um, with, with combat veterans. I have worked with domestic violence. I have worked with child soldiers. I have worked with torture survivors. So when we watch these big global conflicts, and I don't just mean war, I mean, you know, think about what happened with the pandemic. Think about George Floyd. Think about the Ukraine situation. It's so easy to get overwhelmed and to be hopeless. But one of the quotes that's been like the North Star in my life is, if only we clean our own doorstep, the whole world will be clean. <laughs> it's easy for me to look out in the world and be like, fix that. You guys are doing that wrong. Stop that. You shouldn't. You should. All this, right? But how do I show up in my own leadership? As, as a leader to myself, am I kind to myself? Am I forgiving to myself? I really think about my work in three domains. I think about the brain. I think about leadership. And I think about emotional intelligence. I think emotional intelligence and leadership are the things that are going to set the world free. If you think about the brain, it's not that big. It's only about three pounds. I always say it's the most precious real estate in the world. Amen. The parts of your brain that control any bad feeling, stress, irritation, anxiety, anger, rage. It's all controlled by the same parts of the brain. So what this means then is if you think about where things really go wrong for us, the only time my leadership matters and my emotional intelligence matters is when I start to fall into my own pain. I start to get triggered by you. I don't like the words coming out of your mouth, Dan. I don't like the things you're doing, Dan. I don't like the way you're thinking, Dan. But the measure of my power the measure of my emotional power is who I become in my own moments of fear, in my own moments of inadequacy, in my own moments of trigger, in my own moments of stress. And I think this is the most powerful definition I can give for either emotional intelligence or leadership. Carl Jung said that all neuroses arrive from our attempts to avoid legitimate suffering. That sometimes through that suffering, we become cleaner somehow, we become more real. Absolutely. And I think that pain is the most misunderstood messenger in the world. Mm. You know, everyone's kind of heard about how you have sort of two brains, like the thinking brain and the, re the reflexive brain, or some people will call it the reptile brain or the lizard brain. So you have this very reactive brain, and then you have this more powerful, thoughtful brain, right, in kind of broad strokes. So the thing about pain is, of course, if we could avoid pain, of course we should. That's a no-brainer. You don't need a neuropsychologist to tell you that, right? If I put my hand on a hot stove and burn my hand, I'm going to pull my hand back as quickly as possible. Okay. The problem with our emotional pain is it's not just a one and done. 
And we call that one trial learning. Like I burned my hand once, I never put my hand back on that stove. The pain that comes up in our relationships is not one trial learning. So I get hurt again and again and again and again. And this is this is life in a lot of ways. So the power is how do we navigate? So some pain is done to us, right? So this is exactly what trauma is. I'm, you know, assaulting. I'm shot. I'm okay. So plenty of pain is externally delivered to us. Also, a tremendous, a tremendous amount of pain in our lives comes when we divide ourselves from ourselves. I want to speak up, but I keep my mouth shut. I want to say no, but I say yes. I want to relax. What do I do? I overwork. In all of those cases, I have divided myself from myself. And in that moment, I have self-betrayed, I have self-abandoned, and that is a tremendous amount of pain that we inflict upon ourselves. What makes it worse then is that we subdivide ourselves by feeling guilty, then we feel guilty about the guilt, and we ought to be able to mature enough to move on from this. We continue to subdivide our strength as we go along. I love that. I call it the pain sandwich. I loved how you said that you want to do this, and then you don't do it, and then you feel guilty, and then you feel mad because you feel guilty, and then you start to get depressed, and You know, the thing that I want people to also realize is your nervous system, it functions a lot like your physical body in terms of how you how you think about. So a really strong metaphor is like, if I want to get stronger, I go to the gym, I can lift five pounds on my arm. Never in the history of the world has anyone been like, you know, I'm going to get stronger. So what I'm going to do is I'm not going to go to the gym and I'm just going to avoid the gym and I'm just going to sit on the couch all day. No, we're like, okay, I want to get stronger. I got to lift seven pounds. I got to lift 10 pounds. Now, what happens when I really start to lift more weight? My muscles shake. Now, never in the history of going to the gym and having your muscles shake has someone been like, "Ah, this is a crisis. Someone call 911. The shaking is the evidence itself of me getting stronger. I don't love the way it feels. It's hard. It's the exact same on the emotional side. And I call this the emotional shake. Hmm. I can say that shake. Wow, that's intense. Woo! It's giving me a run for my money today. But this is the evidence that I am showing up in my power. This is the evidence I am getting stronger in my own life. I like that because that becomes then self-affirming that if I'm feeling that shake, it means I'm facing the fear. I'm doing the right thing so I can at least be true to myself. Absolutely. Julia, tell me about the fact of consideration though. We're all taught to be considerate of other people's feelings. I don't want to tell you how I feel about you because it might hurt your feelings. So then I bottle it up even worse or I soften the message in such a way it doesn't really come across correctly. Can you kind of address that a little bit of conundrum? We're trying to do the right thing, be true to ourselves, but also don't want to hurt somebody else's feelings. God, that's such a good question. So I, I call this the emotional lead. So like, in other words, I think that you're going to be mad at me or I think that I'm going to hurt your feelings. I I don't want to hurt you. 99% of the world has good intention. People are not going around like, oh, how can I screw the other guy? How can I really turn? Things get tangled. And a big part of the reason things get tangled is because people aren't holding their own emotional power. But a lot of us think like, if I tell the truth, the other person's going to crumble. They're going to fall apart. It's like a calamity, it's a catastrophe. But we got to calm that reptilian brain down for a second and be like, okay, number one, is this working for me? Is all my leaning into other people's emotions, is that really setting the world free? I grew up in a family where people did not know how to manage their own emotions. 
So I learned at a real early age that it was my job to fix people's feelings. At any cost. At any cost. Uh huh. The problem is, Dan, it didn't work. I never, the people who I adored and loved more than life itself, I never could heal them. I could not get sick enough to make a sick person well. I could never give enough to make a, a, a person who needs too much not need. I could never get miserable enough to take their misery away. So the whole, the whole premise that a lot of us are living on, and this is codependency. I'm going to take no responsibility for my own emotions, my own emotional power, and I'm going to take too much responsibility for yours. And what happened? Nobody's powerful. Mm-hmm. It's mutually assured diminishment. Sounds like you know what you're talking about. Yes, that's a beautiful way to put it. I believe, I think the thing people want more than anything on the planet is to be reminded of their power, to be reminded you're strong enough that I can trust you. Mm. I'm strong enough that you can trust me. I want to tell you about two competing drives of the brain that create every single interpersonal problem on the planet. Your brain is absolutely wired for connection. Most clearly, you see this in the infant. The infant's nervous system is quite literally regulated by the nursing of the mother, the bouncing of the father, the rocking of the brain. Like the the nervous system of the baby is regulated by other human beings, okay? So then we grow up and we now know there is a thing called interpersonal neurobiology in our relationship. So for better and for worse, we know that our partners, our spouses, they can soothe us or they can dysregulate us. They can stress us out. They can make us angry. In other words, they can cause us pain. And there's starting to be these really fascinating studies about coworkers. Like we always knew, like we loved our coworkers or they drove us up the wall. Now there's starting to be these really interesting studies of like looking at neurophysiological markers of how other people regulate. And just look at social media. Like you either love social media or you want to pull your hair out on social media. So the behavior of other human beings is, is doing something incredibly intimate, incredibly intimate to my, my, the portal to my whole life, right? I always say our nervous system is our portal to power. So we're absolutely wired for human connection and we're so wired for it that we get desperate for it and that's when it gets tangled. Okay, so we're, drive number one is the drive for connection. Drive number two is the drive, the neurobiological drive for choice. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't care if you call choice autonomy, independence, freedom. So these two drives come into conflict because everyone wants connection and everyone wants independence. So what happens in relationships is people go, hey, Dan, come with me. I really want to be connected to you. But there's only one little rule here. Let's be connected. You just have to do it my way. (laughs) Easy peasy. Right. Look Look at social issues. Look at marital issues things can get really tangled because on one level, I want to be connected to you. I'm so committed to my own autonomy that in order for me to stay connected to you, you too must affirm my autonomy. But the problem is while I'm the, while I'm the main character, my father would always talk about people's scripts, like people's, like like the book of my life. While I'm the main character in my book, you, Dan, are the main character in, in your book until we understand how to reconcile those two drives, interpersonal relationships get very, very tangled. Mm-hmm. 
because that desire to be autonomous, to make our own decisions, but our desire to be connected can sometimes cause us to subvert the autonomy in order to have the connection. But then we're less of a whole person at that point. So the connection's not as valuable to either one of us at that point, if I'm hearing you correctly. Yeah. So I will tell you, like the way to so much of the work that I do is counterintuitive in order to kind of rewire your brain. And this isn't my opinion. We have tons of neuroscientific evidence to support this. You have to start thinking about things a little bit counterintuitive. Otherwise, if you just keep doing what you've always done and keep doing what you've always done and it hasn't delivered you, why would it then deliver you? So our relationships counterintuitively enough get a lot stronger, a lot healthier, a lot more resilient. When I start paying a little bit less attention to you and I start to trust myself, I start to listen to myself, I start to tell the truth about my life, I start to really claim my emotional freedom. The minute I really know how to trust myself, I understand how to trust you. Let's use an an analogy about money. Let's say you wanted 50 bucks for me and I really wanted to give it to you. The only problem is I I truly do not have $50. I I have $0. No matter how much I want to give you the 50 bucks, I cannot give you what I do not have. The same logic, I always talk about behavioral math or emotional physics, I call it. The same logic applies to emotional energies between people. In other words, how could I trust you if I don't have it for myself? How can I give you when I don't have? How can I be forgiving to you when I'm not even forgiving to myself? It's actually a radical act of relational power to really start to think about my own emotional intelligence in my own life. It's been strength in my relationships. Mm-hmm. I like that. If, if we don't do that, then we end up going into emotional debt to try to pay something we don't even have out of borrowing resources from the future, from other people around us, and eventually sapping our own ability to make a difference. Mm-hmm. You know, Julie, I can't even believe how quickly time goes when you're on the line here. This is brilliant, brilliant information here for us. Can I ask you one last question? Because some of our listeners, their lives are going just really in a brilliant path. Other people are really struggling right now either through post-pandemic issues, personal issues, what would be some words of encouragement you could put to somebody that just isn't sure where to turn next? I have a lot of words. So let me try to make this as succinct as possible. So what I want people to know is that no matter where you are in your journey, I have worked with people. So I have worked with, like I said, torture survivors. I've worked with parents who've been bereaved I've worked with people who have endured horrific pain and they had absolutely every reason to say, I'm not getting up again. I'm not, I'm not getting up. And the world would have been like, we understand, like we get it. It's so bad. Like we get it. But this work, I almost get emotional every time I talk about it. It has shown me the unbelievable power of the human spirit. And that if we're willing to work tenderly and wisely with our pain, we can turn anything around. Now, I'm going to give you a really extreme example to make this clear, but if it's true at the extreme, chances are it will be useful for your listeners who maybe don't resonate at the extreme. Have you noticed that the universe speaks to you in two? In twos? So in other words, there's a night and a day and an up and a down and a big and a small and a light and a dark and a dusk and a dawn and a yin and a yay. Nature is a thing of balance. It's always talking to us in twos. I start to ask myself, if I look around at the world and everything is talking to me in twos, what is the opposite of my trauma? 
Now, a trauma is an extreme act of horror. What is the opposite of an extreme act of horror? An extreme act of wonder. The opposite of my trauma is my miracle. If I insist that my miracle is not waiting for me, that my redemption is not waiting for me, that my possibility is not waiting for me, that my freedom is not waiting for me, it is not available to me, then I am the one who has closed the pattern on myself. I am the one who has made it entirely unavailable. How can I claim my up if I'm only looking down? How can I claim my healing if I'm only looking at my suffering? <laughs> Just run the thought experiment. What is the opposite of this pain? And if the pain exists, I promise you, your power exists too. That is tremendously encouraging to me, Julia. It's really about the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things unseen. That's the essence of hope and that's the essence of faith. Wow. Hey, thank you so much. You know, the Action Catalyst is all intended to help inspire people's thinking. You've definitely inspired the host. And I want to thank you for the good work you do for everybody that you encounter. Please keep it up. I will. Thank you so much, Dan. Thank you, Julia. If you enjoyed this podcast, please make sure to subscribe. To stay updated on everything that the Action Catalyst is up to, make sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Action Catalyst Podcast and Twitter at Catalyst underscore Action. Thanks for listening.